Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, in the last Little Atoms of 2016, here's comedy legend Michael Palin in conversation at Waterstones Piccadilly on his book, A Sackful of Limericks. We're not going to be introduced, are we? No, well, I will introduce you. You introduced me. Yeah, sort of. Yes, good. So, yeah, I mean, you you presumably all just wandered in here not knowing what's going on. (laughs) Um, No, Michael Palin clearly doesn't need much of an introduction. Python, Ripping Yarns, Brian, Wanda, Pole to Pole. But what we're here today to talk about is A Sackful of Limericks, which is Michael's new book. And so we're going to talk about this for a while... There'll be plenty of time for questions at the end if you want to talk about all the other stuff. So think about that while we're talking. Come up with some good questions. Or we'll leave about 20 minutes at the end for questions. And in fact, let me just get my uh, timer out just so I make sure of that. As you've all got one of these books for coming, although, of course, Christmas is coming, so you should buy it for relatives, it would also be remiss of me not to say um, I'm Neil Denny from Little Atoms Magazine, and Little Atoms Magazine is for sale downstairs on the, uh, in the basement. So... Um, Go and help yourself to that. 
So, yeah, as I said, we're here mm. to talk about A Sackful of Limericks, which is, well, Michael, this book was first published in 85, so why is it appearing again now? I know, shameful. Shameful <laughs> attempt to cash in on people born since 1985. Um, I've seen one or two of them here. Um, the reason is that in 1985, I collected some, lim- um, collected some limericks for a children's publisher, and I think I wrote, I can't remember how many, 120 or 130, and I, I wasn't actually able to tailor them to a children's audience. You know, I just sort of thought, well, I'll just write limericks which are not dirty or disgusting, but are sort of surreal and funny and daft and all that. And I always felt that they didn't really get to the right audience, which should have been just a general adult and, and children's audience. So m- more recently, uh, Random House were, were interested and said that it was their book originally. Um, can we republish it and write a few more for the, you know, the Christmas market? Yeah, so what's changed since the first edition? What else is in this new There's one? about 30 or 40 new, new limericks, but, and the best of the old ones. So what's, what is it about the limerick for you, then? Why do you like that form? It's just such a classic form, and you can fit anything to a limerick. You can almost say anything about anybody. You can be rude, you can be silly, you can be daft. It's a very, very seductive form, you know. And I think it, I, I just love it because it's like playing with words. Mm-hmm. And it's not terribly significant, it's not a great serious art form, but it's kind of entertaining and everyone has a go at writing a limerick. And it's a, quite, a, it's quite a thing for groups to sort of you know, fire limericks off and everyone tries to have a go. And, and also I think that because of the the form of the limerick, you can, you can almost say anything you want. You can be absolutely disgusting and filthy and rude, or, like mine, you can be artful, clever, witty and uh, <laughs> cerebral. Uh, and I, I just... It's rather sort of compulsive. Once you've started, it's very, very hard to stop. Mm. And when I wrote the original book, indeed writing this book, you know, I just... They were coming out one after the other, and others just not working and all that. I was waking up in the middle of the night saying, oh, God... And someone would say to me, oh, you know, here's some... Um, you know, um, this bloke's come, wants to see you, he's from Leeds. Oh, there was a bloke from Leeds, and you're in, straight into it. You know, everybody is, is drawn into the, the limerick world. So, so it's a form of mild insanity. So when did you start? I mean, is it something that you can do to relax, you know, when you're busy working on something, working on a film or something? This is a, a thing that I can imagine... Again, that sounds like it's, mm. it's running down the form, which I don't mean to do, but it's, it's something that you can do in not very much time if you've just got a few spare minutes, I guess. Yes, I mean, I, I, yeah, I took days and weeks, but um, <laughs> I think actually this was... I deliberately thought when writing the book that I'm going to now concentrate on limericks. I'm going to have some fun writing in this particular form. And once I'd done those, I don't actually, you know, uh, go, go back to the form a great deal. If I had time to spare on a film set, which you always do, I'd rather be reading somebody else's work yeah. than writing new stuff of my own. Talk us through the writing of one of them. What, what tends to come first? You know, is it, like you said, you, you hear Leeds mm. is clearly, that's probably quite a good one. We could Leeds is good. Quite easy. Um, come what comes first, for me, is the first line, obviously. And you think of a town or something like that. I've always been fascinated by the, the towns in England. I think that was fairly clear when we did Python. We used to say, uh, you know, blackmail sketch with Mrs. You know, Elsie Johnson of 43, the Vale, Preston. And people in Preston got terribly excited. Why do you, why do you choose Preston? Why do you choose Preston? Well, just the name came to me and all that. So, um, you know, I, I like names. I like 
the River Nid or something mm. like that. That's quite good. Although I wouldn't recommend a, a, a limerick based on that. Um, <laughs> so I would start with the first line and a place. Uh, Bude is, is a very good one. There was a young fellow from Bude, because that, you know, <laughs> takes you straight into the sort of absolute core of limerick humour. Lewd, nude, rude. So you can get out of that quite easily. And sometimes I would like to test myself. So instead of just saying, there was a young fellow from so-and-so, you'd have a, a one-eyed tattooist from Wrexham. <laughs> which is just quite nice. It appeals to my sense of the surreal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then you have to try and work it out from there. Um, very often, tricky to get the last line. I've done many where I haven't quite got to the, the last line. Um, in fact, I'm I was going to say, should we, should we have a few? Well, I was I'll, just, to... I'll just give you an example very quickly of one that I gave up on the last line. It was rather sort of... It worked out quite well as a non-limerick. And non-limericks are great, but it's just... <laughs> I jotted it down the other day when I was going to go on Clive Anderson's show. Yes, there was a young fellow called Blair who ate several fish for a dare. It wasn't the brill that made him so ill, but his misguided policy in the Iraq war. <laughs> <laughs> You can sort of, it's quite concise. You can sort of take people one way and then the other. Well, I was going to say, so the plan is that Michael's obviously not going to be in a sack full of limericks tonight, but we could perhaps do like a, I don't know, a thimble full or something. Thimble full, yes. Periodically through the uh, conversation, Michael will read a few. So do you want to do a a couple out of the... Oh, gosh, yes. Just stick your thumb in. I'll stick my thumb in. Oh, yes, yes. Ah, da, 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 da. Um, oh, now here you are. A curious young fellow named Kurt used to climb alpine peaks in a skirt. He said it felt nice in the snow and the ice and it kept those below more alert. <laughs> An aspiring young MP from Tring invented a very neat thing. He created a voter, complete with a motor, which he found would support anything. <laughs> Yeah, for now. We'll come back. It wasn't too much, was it? No, two's good. I think think two's a good good round number. Um, Let's talk about the history. Now, you've got a book down here as well, the complete limerick book. Mm. Tell us something about the provenance of this book, first of all, which is interesting in itself. Quite by chance, I went into a bookshop called Henry Southern, which is off, um, uh, off Piccadilly. And I was buying a present for somebody, and there, sitting on, right on the front, was the complete limerick book. So I thought, this has to be... I have to have a look at this. And I opened it up, and it's a book that used to belong to Stephen and Natasha Spender. And it has their book plate there. And uh, it says... It was then a lady called Molly Patterson took it over. Limerick written about me by G.W. Jones on page 64. Um, all stuff like that. But anyway, at the beginning, there's quite a lot of... Um, actually, it's, it's, it's a remarkable book because this is the errata and addenda. I mean, most of the book is wrong, as far as I can see. Enormous amounts. Um, but it's about the history of the Limericks and the way Limerick was a kind of form they think came from Ireland, from Limerick, and it, it derived from a song popular at convivial gatherings in Ireland. Uh, not until the middle of the 19th century, the Limerick may have said to establish itself as a legitimate department of poetic burlesque. I like that. <laughs> Lots of people wrote in the, in the Victorian times, uh, Swinburne, Rossetti, Ruskin. They all had a go. None of them very funny. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that you're missing a, 
You're missing a trick if a limerick isn't... This is chairs falling apart. Um, <laughs> you're missing a trick if a limerick isn't funny. There's that. But, but then you've got Edward Lear, of course, who was considered to be the great limerick writer. In fact, Edward Lear cheated a bit. He yeah, would have... I've, got, I've got some Edward have Lear you got, here. Oh, if you haven't, some, you'll read, read, oh, OK, read, so I'll do one. Some, yeah. So you'll see a theme. I'll read, I'll read a couple, <coughs> and you can tell us what the theme is here. Mm. Um, there was an old person of Fife who was greatly disgusted with life. They sang him a ballad and fed him on salad, which cured that old person of Fife. See, not, not much of a laugh mm. there. Perhaps no, that was no, my reading. No, perhaps no, I should, was, yeah. perhaps that my contemporary is... Uh, it's coming out of the reading. There was an old man of Hong Kong <coughs> who never did anything wrong. He lay on his back with his head in a sack, that incongruous old man of Hong Kong. <laughs> it's cheating, see, right, I, isn't it? I like the first four lines. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, last yeah. line is a cheat, and the last line is a really difficult one to get right. But if you can, if you can get it neatly right... So he must have done that think... once, because he couldn't come up with a f- <coughs> the last line and then thought, oh, this is, a, <coughs> this is good, I'm yeah, sticking yeah, with so this. I've, cra- I've cracked this. I've cracked this. Maybe all the lines could be the same. There wasn't a fellow called from Tring. There was a fellow from Tring. He came from Tring, this man from Tring. A strange old man from Tring. <laughs> so I was going to talk about if there's any, any that you're particularly fond of of other writers, anyone that's influenced you or anything. So what have you got? Have you got I can see there's lots of uh, well, post-it notes on I've that made book. a few, a few notes. Um, there's one... Um, and these, these are just lots of collections. This is... I, I particularly like this because this is by W.S. Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan. And he clearly um, got bored with traditional uh, limericks and wrote this wonderful one. There was an old man of St. Bees who was stung in the arm by a wasp. <laughs> when asked, does it hurt, he said, no, it doesn't. I'm so glad it wasn't a hornet. <laughs> Now, the, the lady whose book this was said it was on page 64, a, and she's, she's marked the limerick that was written about her. She's not technical. Anyway, it's called a lady, a lady, an expert on skis, went out with a man who said, please, on the next precipice, will you give me a kiss? She said, quick, before somebody sees. <laughs> but much more interesting is one here, which is stuck into the book. It might have been, you know, written by by Natasha or Stephen, you never know, but it's just here, and it's um, a certain young damsel called Maud, whom society said was a fraud. In the ballroom, I'm told, she was haughty and cold, but out on the stairs, oh, my God. <laughs> I quite like that one. It's not even sort of printed in the book. It's funnier than most of the ones they printed. <laughs> this is one I've never read this before. It's, it can, you can be very dark. Uh, there was an old fellow of Spain whose legs were cut off by a train. When his friend said, how sad, he replied, I'm glad, for I've lost my varicose vein. <laughs> Can, may I do another one? Yes, yes. Another uh, uh, writer I'm very fond of for his history is the, uh, Robert Conquest, the, uh, ah, yeah. the, biogra- the biographer of Stalin, amongst others, uh, a great uh, historian of, of, of the Soviet era. Um, he did a, a very rude one based on Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man, which I'm not going to do just in case there's any children, but this one, I think, basically, he needn't have written any books. This limerick is basically Robert Conquest's entire work put down into five lines. So the rest of his career was a waste of time. There was a great Marxist named Lenin who did two or three million men in. 
That's a lot to have done in, but where he did one in, that great Marxist Stalin did ten in. Yeah, that is very good. I mean, that's a, that's a career that's in a five good, lines. And a good political limerick. Very good indeed, yeah, no, yeah. He should have stopped then, shouldn't he, really, instead of writing the book to go with it. Yeah. Should we, uh, can we do a couple more of yours, in that we read in other yes, people's? Yes, 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 OK. Um, let me see what I've got here. A boxer from Malta called Raymond used a big concrete wall to take aim on. He broke both his arms and three lucky charms, one with his grandmother's name on. Um, uh, a white cocker spaniel from Poole had a thing about Peter O'Toole. When he came on the telly, he'd roll on his belly and do funny things to the stool. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you laugh at that because uh, the publisher at one point said, Do people still know who Peter O'Toole is? <laughs> I thought, my God. Um, well, a girl, no, uh, let me see another one here. Um, a travelling salesman called Lloyd was known as a man to avoid. The horrified stares as he showed off his wares was a sight that he clearly enjoyed. <laughs> I wanted to talk about how writing limericks sort of fitted in with the, the rest of your work as a writer. Of course, for a lot of the, uh, the Python stuff and the, the yarn stuff, you're obviously working with Terry Jones. But of course, you're also a diarist, and so yeah. that's clearly a, a solitary form. This is a yeah. solitary form. Does writing a diary, is that like a form of discipline, I guess, for, for other work? Yeah, I think it is, really. I mean, I've I'm always been obsessively... Um, keen on writing down lists when I was young. I used to write sort of little newspapers of my own I'd make up when I was at school. Um, I just loved the written word and the shape and form it would take and all that. Um, and now, I mean, I started a diary in 1969 and have managed to keep it up right to this morning. And I now find it's as important to me as sort of uh, it, you know, cleaning my teeth in the morning. It's just something I probably couldn't start the day without writing down a little record of the day before. I find that it's, it's good in many ways. It, it forces you to... Well, I, you write longhand. I keep my diary longhand, so it forces me to keep my handwriting going. Also, um, it forces me to try and condense uh, and describe a day before well. You know, it's, a, it's good training for... Mm -hmm for the powers of description and trying to avoid repeating yourself. And the other thing is, it's just, it's a very, very good... You, you feel you've written for 20 minutes mm -hmm. a day. Whatever it is, you've written something for yeah. 20 minutes a day. And to me, that's quite important. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's therapeutic. At what point in the life of the diary did it become... You know, did you realise you were going to publish them? And does it change at that point? I mean, does how you then... Have, approach the thing have to well, change if you know that you're writing it with view for future publication? Um, I like to think not, but I'm sure it does. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was 2006 when someone came to me and said, they knew I kept a diary, and said, why don't you publish some of your diaries? And I thought, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know, they're private and all that sort of thing. But you can edit them and, and sort them out. And I thought, well, actually, they are really just records of days of a life spent. And... If I publish them now, rather than, you know, let someone publish them after I'm gone, then we can sort of enjoy it together. And that's kind of what ha what's happened with the diaries. Mm -hmm. So the, the publication of them, people have come up and said, oh, I read that bit about so-and-so. Quite a number of 
writers, comedy writers, have sort of um, looked at the diaries and said, oh, that's interesting, because you describe how you, how you write with, the, with your writing partner and the difficulties and the problems that you have. And so many people have similar problems. Anyway, all sorts of things, things about my family and all that, and uh, my sister's death and all that. This, I, I thought it was, yeah, I, I wanted to write about it in my way, and that was there in the diaries. And I, I mean, I've been asked many times to write an autobiography. Mm -hmm. I said, well, the diaries are the yeah, autobiography. Yeah. Now, your question is, you know, do you, do you change slightly now when I write it? I think I'm a little bit more careful about yeah. describing where I am. I'm not, it's not actually what's happening or anything like that, but I, I know that that I would not normally have bothered with in the first instance. Mm -hmm. But now I, maybe that's just old age, but it's also because I think that it's a guide through to a, to a diary that may once uh, one day be published and people want to know where you are and what you're doing. And I want to bring that back to the, to the limericks as well. So again, although it's only five lines, again, <coughs> is that like you could, if you wrote one of those a day or something, there's another way you could, you know, you could get into the, just get into the rhythm mm. of writing. In the same way as writing a diary every day, it's another form of, of instilling discipline if you know you're going mm. to be writing later on in the day. Well, the thing about limericks, they're entertainments. They're writing what you don't necessarily feel you mm. have to say. Whereas the diary is a bit more wearing. rigorous. You know, you've got to actually, what did I do? Why did I do it? How did it happen? Blah, blah, blah. And try and make that interesting. So, you know, they're both disciplines. But I think that I would write a limerick at the end of writing, at the end of a day, just say, oh, well, let's have some fun. You know? You're not going to write an autobiography, but are you working on anything now, writing-wise? Um, uh, well, I've got a, a project which I can't really say much about at the moment because it's in very, very early stages, but I'm going to write a book, a non-fiction book, about the great days of exploration uh, in the early 19th century. And that I shall, you know, I've not done anything quite like that before, but it's following up an interest of mine, which um, I hope it'll work out over the next year, yeah. So that brings us on to, to travel quite nicely. So obviously it's nearly 30 years now since, uh, sorry to, uh, to bring that up, since the Around the World in 80 Days mm. trip. Um, and you're still traveling. You were in Taiwan recently. I love traveling, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I can, and it doesn't have to be far. You know, I can go down to South Wales or something like that, and it's kind of different. Um, uh, so it's just, it, to me, I, th I think I'm quite sort of restless in a way. I like diversion of places. I like seeing somewhere different. I like reading different books. I like looking at different pictures. I like being in different places. I like seeing how people are in a place which is different from where I live, you know. And those little fine details of life, I think, are really quite important. And I just wanted to talk briefly before we hand over to the audience about recently you, uh, you had the chance to interview the... Uh, the venerable travel writer, Jan Morris. Yes. I wonder if you could tell yes. us what, what talking to her was like. She's a, a fantastic figure. Well, yes, I mean, I, I've been a huge fan of Jan Morris all my life. She's a marvellous writer and set a certain standard with books like Venice, which I don't think anyone has ever uh, bettered. Mm -hmm. um, and Venice, to me, was the one travel book which really affected me when I read it. And it, it just made my whole experience of going to Venice for the first time that much richer. And I'd never be able to say this to the author. So to be asked to go up and, and interview her was, um, you know, it was, was a bonus, but also I was, I was a little nervous because I know that she doesn't do many interviews. She guards her privacy very jealously. Um, and we went up, and in the end, in the BBC, 
she lives in quite a remote part of Wales. Um, but the BBC, in their wisdom, had given us only one night away, so we had to travel up from London all the way to Wales, do the interview at about five o'clock in the afternoon, and a little bit more the next morning. Now, five o'clock in the afternoon is not the best time to start um, a major interview, but she was brilliant and composed and funny and totally sort of in control. And she's 90. She wasn't sort of saying, oh, I'm very tired, I can't do this, darling. And I realised that she's a real trooper. She was, when, when she was James Morris, she was a reporter, mm-hmm. um, not just the only reporter on the Everest expedition in 1953, but also... Um, she gave the news, he, he, he at yes, that time, gave the news. He gave the Everest, news yeah. that, that Everest had been climbed on the mm. Queen's birthday, in 19, uh, Queen's coronation day in 1953. But also, he was a, a BBC presenter and did lots of shows and was very good in front of camera, quite wry, quite funny. And, you know, you don't lose that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. So what could have been hard work with me talking to him, you know, someone of 90 years old, late in the afternoon, feeling rather tired, was wonderful. And we sort of got on rather well, I think, mm-hmm. because she's a professional. She knows that, you know, it can't just be adulation and this sort of thing, you know. There's got to be a wryness, there's got to be an irony there. She likes being sent up, she likes being a bit self-deprecating, but is still very proud of what she's written. Mm-hmm. And I thought one of the best things in, in the little programme was Jan reading her own work beautifully read, you know, and especially the night before the sex change, you know, her gender reassignment, she was in Casablanca, you know, and she just reads this last paragraph of the book, you know, saying, you know, tomorrow I won't be a man any longer. And listening to the music outside and the people walking down the street, real wonderful writer's eye on the world. Let's just pause at this moment for a a couple more limericks from the book. Gosh, you're a sucker for punishment, aren't you? Yeah, OK, let's get something earlier on. Um, um, Maud is quite a you know, common one, isn't it? Because the book in there, there's a, a lot in there about Maud. There once was a fellow called Maud who became very easily bored. One day at a lunch, he fell in a bunch of lupins and lay there, ignored. <laughs> a young mountaineer called Vic became quite close friends with a stick. He took it for walks, they had little talks, and it left him to live with a brick. <laughs> I want to get you to do my favourite one, which is not an opportunity I'm going to get again. It's all about the woman who wins a bear. Oh, yeah. It's quite near the front, I believe. While you're finding it, a javelin throw? No, no, no. No, hang on. Sorry, there's a bit of anticipation building up for... Uh... A lady musician called Hamp was prone to quite severe cramp. One day at the harp, she got stuck in F-sharp and was freed by a settling lamp. (laughs) A chairlift attendant called Frank. A chairlift attendant, that's quite interesting. (laughs) Where he came. Ate tropical fish from a tank. When he swallowed them whole, he picked up a bowl of goldfish beside them and drank. A batsman from Sydney called Fairley hit a fast ball, good and... Hit a... You see, it's very important to get the scansion right. A batsman from Sydney called Fairley hit a very fast ball, good and squarely. A fielder called Reith caught the ball in his teeth, a thing which he did very rarely. <laughs> but trust me, there's a really great one in... No, no. Here we go, we're going to be You've all got a copy yeah. of the book. Trust me, when you get to yeah. the one about the woman who won a bear, it's, it's, it's excellent. OK, just, just one more thing from me, then. We were talking about travel... 
Um, so have you got any, any more televisual adventures lined up? Are we likely to see you doing anything else travel-wise? Well, I, I'm not trying to be, sort of um, avoid the issue, but, but at the moment about three or four things all might happen mm-hmm. in the next year. But um, for various reasons, I kind of want to be around at home and, and not travelling quite as much. So I shall probably be writing this book about the great era of explorations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's much more interesting than that when you get to um, That will be most of next year. There are some, um, there are some travel documentaries on, on come up. Whether I'll be able to do them or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll just see. I just, it's awful, but I can't say anything about them. No, at the of course, no. Because people say, oh, you couldn't have told anybody. So there we no, go. It's nice to know that there's, there's numerous options. Oh, gosh, I, I just love it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Even going to Taiwan, I love. I mean, not even, that's rather rude to people <laughs> from Taiwan. <laughs> but it's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, smartphone installations, but also a very beautiful central mountainous area of the island, which is a um, great national park and very good food there, very good street food. Mm-hmm. The best, actually. Better than China. OK, well, on that recommendation, then, as I promised, I'm, I'm going to hand over to you guys. Um, Hans, yeah, if we can start over there. Maybe. Hello. Hi. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to ask two questions. You feel free to answer one, if you like. Um, you've done everything from diaries to limericks to comedy to drama. And by the way, Remember Me is one of, it's probably my favourite drama in the recent years. I loved it. Um, is there anything that um, you still think, like, I should have done this sort of thing? which you haven't got up to doing as yet. And uh, my second mm, part is, yeah. have you written many uh, autobiographical limericks? No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, the last one. maybe this is a very interesting sort of field of study. Look through these limericks the and you'll find... One. The very last one. Oh, yes, yes, all right. Um, this is perhaps autobiographical. There once was an author called Palin, whom limericks seemed just plain sailing. He wrote 94... But when asked for one more, he just ran down the street screaming, leave me alone! (laughs) (laughs) But that's a very interesting, you know, point you make about what what comes into one's mind when you write a limerick, you know? Where where does it actually come from? You know, why are people on lengths of string and all that and bouncing about and there's a lot of physical stuff and all that movement? Where does that come from? I don't think autobiographical, but you can probably rake through my... My, uh, my psyche somewhere and find something that's, uh, that's, uh, gives them a, gives a pattern to it. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm just looking here, you know, in, in this bookshop, and I see true crime. I'd love to write a good crime novel. Love to. Never really kind of sort, sort of have approached it every now and then, because I like reading them, but I, I, um, that, that, that's a gap. And a sel- self-help. Um, <laughs> Breathing, breathing volume two. <laughs> Out. <laughs> this gentleman right down here at the front. Yes, I wanted to ask you. Um, you, you did uh, some shows with the Monty Python team recently in the West End. Yes. And I was wondering. I know that they've all got their own um, sort of plans to do other things. Which, which aren't Monty Python related. Yeah. But would you think of doing any sort of well, just somebody asking here about you know the Python reunion two or three years ago. Um, are there any other plans for Python to get together and do things? No, not really. I mean, we never say never. Um, so something could possibly happen. We have a website, so we have to keep supplying uh, 
jokey material for it and all that sort of stuff. And of course, the, you know, you can spend the rest of your life just reminiscing. I mean, Cleese and Idle, you know, these Cambridge lot, they, they go around America now talking about how wonderful it was working with me. You know, and that's fine. I'd rather be doing something different. But if they want to just remember their shoe size for the rest of their lives, that's fine. Uh, glad we got that question out of the way nice and early. Everyone yeah. else that was going to ask the same thing, think of something else. I'm going to come over to this guy over here. Hi there. Um, for the places you've visited in the world, is there anywhere that stands out as your least favourite? Oh, right. Well, you know, someone saying, is there anywhere in the world, of all the places I've visited, stands out as my least favourite? Uh, no, I'm not going to say Wales. <laughs> Naughty man at all. Um, it's very hard, really. I mean, I, I used to say... Uh, people used to say, well, you know, you've been all around the world. Is there anywhere you, you haven't been? I used to say Middlesbrough. And, um, <laughs> because I'd never been to Middlesbrough. I thought I'd never go to Middlesbrough. And what a terrible place Middlesbrough must be. I went to Middlesbrough on my tour recently. It was terrific. <laughs> I mean, there's sort of a bit... There's not much going on in the evening, but, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, there's almost nowhere that if you approach it in the right way hasn't got some... <laughs> sort of quality to it. I mean, I've been to some grim, desperate places and had awful food, but then you see the people in the street and all that, and it comes something interesting. I suppose the worst, the least interesting for me, are sort of big, you know, the big modern cities, the shopping malls and all that, where you don't see any life at all. There are very few small places to eat, small shops. It's all big, it's all on a huge scale. Everyone's on their, you know, their, their phone all the time. Um, happened a bit in, in, um, you know, in China, you find that quite a lot now. And there I find if there's no connection with people that I meet on the street, even if it's just sort of eye contact or something like that, that you know, I, I tend to forget those places. And they do leave me a little bit depressed. But I haven't got any names or addresses. <laughs> Can I just ask this lady oh, just okay. here, and then we'll come to you next. Yeah, you. Um, so I'm a writer myself. Yeah, a writer asking what inspires me. It would be writer. Do you do well, limericks? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pretty much anything, really. Um, I say mainly it's people, human life, the way people behave, especially with a sort of slightly comic slant, as you may imagine. Um, I, I I like eccentricity. I like sort of people who look at the world in a slightly sort of particular way. You know, I mean, I. I think most of the best writing I've done has been about people, either whether it's a play or a book or a novel or whatever. It's about somebody's predicament and how they deal with it. Because I think that gives you a chance to get into a character, try and say something about the character, um, explore the situation they're in, like I did with the novel The Truth, you know, that, that recently. Um, I really enjoyed that in the end, because the character, once you've created that character... They lead you on. I mean, this thing about you must find, you know, your characters really do take you through. And, you you know, you can't push the buggers. If they don't want to go to bed together, they can't go to bed together. Or they don't want to go out the door even. They can't, you can't get them out of the door. So one has to find ways of, of doing it and exploring it, which is to do with observation of, of human nature. Uh, how much competition was there between the Python team when you were actually writing the scripts? And afterwards, when Cleese wrote Faulty Towers, did that put you under pressure to write something 
Um, did everyone hear that? That was very well. I could hear it clearly. How much competition was there amongst the Python team? And when John wrote Faulty Towers, did it kind of get us all better? Very competitive. You know, we, we, we were, I mean, I left university and became a sort of comedy writer for the, for the Frost Report. And there must have been about 30 writers that they employed. So you're always desperate to get your material in there. And so it was, it was quite competitive. And when we would write Monty Python, we would sort of go away uh, in our separate groups, John and Graham Chapman writing together, myself and Terry Jones, Eric on his own, then there would be a, a read-through of the, of the material. And that was a very crucial moment. You know, if you, someone went to make coffee in the middle of that, could totally, you know, sort of ruin your presentation <laughs> of a sketch. Uh, it, you know, if it didn't, didn't work first time, there was never a second chance. So we were, we were very, very polite, because we're all very nice middle-class Brits, and no one would say that we, we actually sort of uh, felt we were much funnier than somebody else or had written something much better than somebody else. But there was, yes, definitely a sort of competitive edge. Usually with comedy, um, the competition was clear, you know, the, 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 the final outcome was clear because it made people laugh or it didn't make people laugh. And however much you may think, oh, I've written the funniest thing ever, if all the others sit around saying, you know, that doesn't work, it doesn't work. So usually what we knew, and you had to defer to somebody else if they'd written a really, really good sketch. But there were the one or two sketches which we, we don't... We can't quite remember who wrote what where. And um, things like the Silly Walks is a very complicated. I think all of us had a hand in there somewhere. Anyway, so, yeah, of course it's competitive. Um, when John went off to write Faulty Towers, we all... I think we were a little bit sort of upset in a way that John wasn't going to stay for an, another series. But fair enough, you know, you can't force someone to be there and write comedy. Um, what we didn't know was what John was going to be writing. And then we see this Faulty Towers, and the very first one was sort of, it was just set, you know, kind of tatty old BBC sets with the doors that sort of, you could see them sort of falling apart and wobbling. And we, we kind of, some Pythons, particularly the two Terries, saw us as uh, at the cutting edge of sort of film and comedy and all that sort of thing, you know, and animation and all these other elements that was, it was ne comedy had never been presented like this before. And let me see John doing the oldest kind of sitcom in the world. And, you know, <laughs> I remember, you know, God. He just was terribly funny, unfortunately. Uh, 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 although, I remember Graham ringing me up the night John's went out, he said, oh, God, did you see that? And I said, what do you think? Well, won't be doing many more of those. <laughs> so there was jealousy. That was, just na that was naked jealousy. The gentleman just here, he's been an assistant. There we go. Mr. Palin, uh, you have seen uh, the planet and the people and peoples very closely. Do you intend transporting your experiences in the form of short stories, my number one question. Mm -hmm. And second question, which spot on the planet impressed you most? Well, that's really tricky. Um, short stories, no. I, I, that's a form that I've never really been... Uh, I've never had a go at. Uh, I, I would hope that all my experiences and my travels will come out in everything I write, whether whatever it is, um, except possibly limericks. Um, I've never been to Bude. Um, uh, 
it's very tricky. I like the differences, you see. I would say, well, I can you know, go to South America and Rio, and it's lively, and everyone's very sort of... Um, they, 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 they have a sort of tendency to happiness, which you won't find in some other countries in the world. And then you will go to uh, Russia or somewhere like that and find somewhere fairly grim, and in the middle of it all is a great, wonderful eccentric. You know, great Russians are extremely eccentric people. Uh, and you must remember that, that with every nation there's not really a, a typical person of any shape or form. So um, it would be very, very hard. You know, I mean, there are places I would feel very comfortable, south of France, north Italy. I like all the sort of museums and the culture and all that sort of thing. But also, I was, you know, I, I, I will never forget the two days we spent in the Atacama Desert in Chile, where it hadn't rained for 400 years, there was nobody else about, but you were there with this fantastic and extraordinary landscape all around you, and you do feel very tiny and very vulnerable. So, just get out and shake it up, really, that's the thing. Oh, well, well, mm. I'll settle for both, yeah. <laughs> MP Marco Polo, I suppose, but yeah. Uh, I was going to ask what it was like to work uh, and be directed by Terry Gilliam on Brazil. What was it like to, be, to work and be directed by Terry Gilliam on Brazil? Um, it wasn't easy, because Terry pushes everybody very hard. He's, he's, he's always charming, he never really gets angry. Um, but he gets enormously enthusiastic. And he does set up some things which are so extraordinary that you probably find that you're hanging from the ceiling for about two hours while he gets the sort of camera around there. You don't know why you're doing it, but he says, in the end, it'll be great, it'll be great, OK? Is your neck OK? Well, actually, no, it's, um, I'm losing... I think I'm losing consciousness. Great, great, that's going to be good. This is going to be work. Uh, Mike's losing consciousness. Give him, a, give him some water. So you never know quite what you're up for, and it's never going to be an easy ride. I mean, Terry doesn't do things like Pride and Prejudice. Um, he, he, he just gets straight in there, and it's very, very physical and quite intense. I think, that, uh, I think that Terry always used to... He created the canvas and tended to let the actors... He'd get actors who he knew he'd worked with before, who knew what they were doing, he'd let them do it. That was, that was the way he kind of tended to like to work. Um, and, uh, I mean, it, it's, you've, got to be, you've got to be on the ball. It's not, an, it's not an easy ride, but it's an exciting ride. This lady down here. Are you pretty much open to going wherever they want to send you, or have there been some places you've said, no, I don't feel comfortable going there, or I don't want to go there? Place. Yeah, <laughs> no, someone asking, yes, are there places that I... Um, uh, well, when they send me, as you said, uh, other places which I don't want to go and I refuse. It doesn't work that way. I usually come up with the idea myself of where I want to go. So it's never been a question of the BBC saying, go to Middlesbrough. You know, <laughs> I go there. I go there of my own accord. Um, uh, no, I mean, so it hasn't really come up that I've, I've had to say, no, I'm not going there. In fact, I have an... an yeah, I know it's a silly thing to say, a very dangerous thing to say, an interest in places which people don't normally go to, being off the beaten track, which is hard in the world now because so many places have been covered and visited and toured. Being off the beaten track is, um, is, is part of the attraction to me. Uh, I wonder what your memories were of how George Harrison came to be involved in the uh, life of Brian, what your memories are of working with him? Um, well, 
We, we had uh, written The Life of Brian after the success of Holy Grail, and we wrote it for EMI, the British company, and a man called Barry Spikings worked there, and he gave us some seed money. He said, look, this is great. Looks really good. Here's some money. We sent people out to North Africa to start building the sets and all that. And then the, the chairman of EMI, a man called Michael Carreras, read the script, and he was shocked. <laughs> Utterly shocked. <laughs> he said, is this our company doing this? And they said, yeah, it's going to be great. No, it's not. It's disgusting. It's blasphemous. We're not touching this. And ordered, um, ordered the contract to be abandoned, and EMI pulled out. So we had you know, some of the sets built in, in Monastir in Tunisia. We had two or three carpenters working out there, and no film. Uh, Eric... Eric Idle happened to be uh, in, in Hollywood, and he, was, he, he knew, he'd got to know George quite well. And he just, one moment, was, was talking about it, and uh, George revealed what a huge Python fan he was. I mean, all the Beatles were Python fans, and the way we were huge fans of the Beatles. And um, he said, um, look, I'll talk to my manager, and I'm going to get you some money. And he got us five million dollars then and there of his money and um, someone said to him you know later they said George what, what, what? I mean five million for, for a film what was that all about he said well you know I just wanted to see it <laughs> <laughs> which is you know that you can do that if you're a Beatle <laughs> and he became very good friends with us all very and started a lot of the handmade films um, uh, Time Bandits was uh, financed largely as a result of George. Even, even films he didn't like, a private function, which he didn't like at all. What's funny about this pig, you know? It's, it's disgusting. Um, but it turned out to be quite successful, so he was quite happy with that. It was a, a very good period of friendship, and, and also, when you're business friends, it's not always easy, but we remained friends throughout to the end of his life, and I miss him greatly. Right, just one more question, this young lady just here. Um, this is a bit of a weird one. Um, have you ever been to Tasmania? Um, yes. You have? Um, I Sorry. That's yeah. This conversation went, this is a bit of a weird one. <laughs> I was waiting for it. And then he said, have you ever been to Tasmania? And I thought, how weird well, is that? Weird it is a weird place. I've been there two or three times. Yeah. And the book that I'm going to be writing, part of it's sort of set in Tasmania. Oh, really? So I'm, I may go over there again. I like it, yeah. Yeah, it's when you were talking about sort of untouched places, a lot, a lot, yes. of, uh, a lot of forests and wildlife and Lovely. stuff. It's all very... Like whales. Yes, yeah, beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. But, you know, in the period of the 19th century, it was a hellhole, you know, slave colony and all that. Really, really ghastly. Yeah. But now, yeah. Where do you live? Hobart? Um... Yeah, well, I grew up sort of in the country, um, and then we moved to Hobart when I was about seven. Okay, that's enough, because they're all all bored stiff. I'm sorry, I'm not. Maybe you and I can talk later, but they're all absolutely funny what you're saying. You grew up near Hobart. Right. You don't know where Hobart is, not near Hobart. Right, we're going to have to wrap it up. Now, before Michael goes, he's going to be signing books. There's going to be quite a... There's a lot of you to get books signed, so there might be a bit of a, you know, a bit of a strict signing regime. 
um, but you'll get you'll all get everything signed. Now there will be manacles, I'm yeah. afraid. Sorry, just only on your legs. That's all. Your arms will be free. Now again, this uh, sackful of limericks is is for sale here. You've all got one, but I'm sure you know relatives who you haven't got a Christmas present for yet, or you know person in the office that you don't know very well but you've got in the secret Santa this is a you know a great option um, and just one last thing you know when you get that thing where you're worried suddenly that perhaps the limerick that you think is your favorite one was in another book of limericks you read earlier this week well it turns out it wasn't so Michael if you would just do oh, that one well, your favorite. oh you god no, no there once was a lady called Tate who won a live bear at a fate to her home it was led but it hadn't been fed, and the police got there seconds too late. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Palin. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.